You may have noticed in the bottom attachment to that hymn, it's taken from Psalm 51. You might have assumed as we've sung about Jesus being a wonderful Savior and a friend for sinners and the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. And then this one on the mercy of God that we're dealing this morning with that psalm, Psalm 51, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me. To the 51st Psalm. As I read, remember this is the Word of God. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blight out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Again, that is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are all struck by the honesty of this psalm the plea for forgiveness that it contains. It's a universal psalm because it is to all of us. For all of us are sinners. And so we pray that today you would take your word and use it in our lives according to our own spiritual need. Father, you know us behind and before. You know our, even the numbers of the hairs upon our heads. And so we pray as we come to deal with our sin that you help us do so humbly 
and yet confidently in your mercy and your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know what it is to fail, don't we? We know what it is to have set a goal and then not reach it. Doesn't matter what the goal is, whether it is to lose 20 pounds or 30 in my case, whether it is to make a million dollars, whether it is to make straight A's in school, we all know what it is to set a goal and not reach it. That's what sin is. Sin is failing to reach the goal that God has set for us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin this way. It says, Sin is any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That is, sin is not doing what God has told you to do. That's what we call a sin of omission. Or sin is doing what God has said not to do. And that we call a sin of commission. You see, the law of God is the standard. That's the goal that God sets for His people. You know, even though our culture says otherwise, there are moral absolutes in this world. And God expects us to attain those moral absolutes and to live by them. And not to adhere to that standard is what the Bible calls sin. The bad news is, the Bible says that includes all of us. John tells us all, or Paul tells us in Romans 3, all have sinned. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to deal with our sin problem. He has paid the penalty. He has satisfied the debt. He has covered the guilt of our sin. Isn't that great news? If it's a Baptist church, I got an amen to that. Hallelujah. <laughs> amen. Jesus paid the debt. He's covered our guilt. He has satisfied the justice of God that you deserve because of your sin. However, even though through grace you have been saved, and by faith you have entered into a relationship with Him and, and through the finished work of Christ, you've been forgiven. The reality is, folks, you still sin. The Bible is clear that even for those of us who have new life in Christ, sin continues to be a problem. Elements of the old sinful nature still remain in us. It plagues us. And it hinders us from obeying God. It keeps us from being everything God wants us to be. We read in our call to worship this morning. I don't usually take calls to worship from from the letters or epistles, but I did this morning. And in a call to worship, John says, if you say that you have no sin, if you say that you don't sin, you are deceiving yourself. And the truth is not in you. Sin will continue to be a problem 
for each one of us until the day we die and pass from this life to the next. In this life, what we do is we try to sin less and obey more. That's what we know is the process of sanctification, where we try to die to sin and live to Christ. Now, the Puritans love to call that the mortification of sin. Big word which just means trying to put sin to death, to stamp it out in your life. But what do you do when you're not successful in that? What do you do when you realize you've sinned? Notice again, I didn't say if you sin. I said when you sin. Because it's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. However, I want you to understand this morning that when you fall into temptation, when you commit sin, when you fail to reach the goal that God has set for you, you are not alone. All of us, all of us, I don't care if we are six years old, let me just go back, four years old or 94 years old. Been a Christian six weeks or 60 years. We all still struggle with the problem of sin. And that's why we all need to know how to deal with the reality of our sin. And I don't know of anyone better to tell us how to do that than David. Yes, the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. We, we revere David. He, he was the author of many of the Psalms that we're studying here in morning worship. And yet, David has his own problems with sin. You know, I need to recount again the details of David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and his sin of murder against Uriah. But suffice it to say that David knew what it was to sin. And David knew what it was to experience the burden of the guilt of sin. That's what we saw back in Psalm 32, where David talked about that heavy weight, the guilt, his sin bore down upon him before he dealt with it. And, and that's what we find here in Psalm 51, where David finally deals honestly and openly with God about his sin. This is one of the psalms that we know as a penitential psalm. And in it, David shows how he dealt with his sin. And it's so often the case, his experience is an example for us as we seek to deal with our own. Four things I want to bring to you. First, as you deal with your sin, you must experience confession or conviction followed by confession. Those are the two C's in dealing with your sin. Conviction and confession. As we saw, David went through a period of time when he didn't confess, when he tried to hide his sin, when he tried to cover it. And that's when his guilt just bore down upon him. It was almost more than he could take. He says, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Your hand was heavy upon me. 
he says in Psalm 32. Well, during that time, David, or excuse me, God sent to David a messenger. His name was Nathan. God sent Nathan to give David a message. And he gave the message by means of a story. And the story Nathan told David, I'm sure you're familiar with it, was of two men that lived in the same town. One of the men was very rich in all kinds of flocks and herds. The other man was rather poor, very common man. He had one little lamb. He bought it when it was young. He intended to raise it for food for his family, but over time, it became more like the family pet. It would eat out of their hand. It would drink out of a cup. It became like a part of the family. man couldn't kill the lamb to feed his family. One day, guests came to visit the rich man. He was too tight and too stingy to take one of his own many animals to feed his guests. Instead, he sent his servants over to the house of the poor man. And they took his one little lamb, brought it, and they killed it. And they cooked it. And they fed it to his guests. When David heard the story, he was enraged. And he said, that man ought to die. And Nathan looked at David and he said, you are that man. You are him. And at that moment, David was convicted. It was then David was convicted of the reality and the depth of his sin. And so he began to confess it. I want you to notice several things about David's confession here. One is he didn't try to hide it any longer. What does it say in verse 3? He says, I know my transgressions. You know, that's what confession is. Confession is saying, look, I know I've sinned. Confession is agreeing with God that what you have done didn't reach the goal. It missed the mark. It's a sin. Don't think for a moment that when you confess your sin, you're telling God something He doesn't know. Believe me, as embarrassing as it might be, God knows them all. He knows everyone. And all you're doing in confession is you're saying, look, I know it too. I realize that what I've done is against your law. It's a sin. Confession is agreeing with God. And that's what David did. When Nathan said, you are the man, David said, I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. But notice that confession of sin must be personal. You know, too many times I'm afraid when we confess sin, we do it in the plural. 
We confess our sin, our corporate sin. We say, we have sinned. Forgive us. But that's not enough. You're responsible for your own sin. And you must confess your sin to the Lord. David's confession is very personal here. Again, verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, he says, I have sinned. It's a personal prayer. It's a personal confession. David isn't confessing the sin of someone else. He's confessing his own sin. He's not saying, well, it was Bathsheba's fault. Or if you're right, just done what I thought he'd do and go sleep with his wife. I wouldn't have had to kill him. He owned up to it. He said, it's my sin. It's a very personal psalm. David uses the personal pronouns, I, me, my, or mine, 35 times in this psalm. Confession of sin must be personal. And you must take personal responsibility for your sin. I can't confess your sin. Oh, as a pastor, I confess our sins corporally. But folks, you've got to confess your sin. You've got to come to God and say, I did it. I missed the mark. I failed. I'm guilty. But acknowledging the reality of your sin is the, is the first step in dealing with it. Folks, it's just like in every other situation of life. Until you admit it, you can't deal with it. Unless it's real to you, you can't solve the problem of your sin. Before you confess your sin, you must be convicted of it. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit's our Nathan. The Holy Spirit says to you, you are the man. You're the woman. You did it. And then we are convicted. We confess and say, yes, I've sinned against the Lord. But I want you to notice also that David did this confession, made this confession, a sense of sorrow and shame. He didn't just brush it off lightly. End of verse 3 says, My sin is ever before me. The truth is that, folks, we have too light a view of sin. We live in a culture that just kind of minimizes sin. We need to see sin the way God sees it. The Bible says that sin makes God angry. The Bible says God hates sin. The Bible says it was sin that led Jesus to the cross. It was sin that drove the nails into his hands and into his feet. Look, folks, sin is serious. It's nothing to play around with. 
You know, the whole thing is, you, if you play with the fire, you get what? You get burned. You play with sin, you can get in trouble. The Bible's true. It says your sins will find you out. And if they don't find you out in this life, they'll find you out in the next. But notice also that David's confession was specific. He was specific about who his sin was against and what his sin was. Look at verse 4. He says, against you, you only I have sinned. He's talking, he's not talking to Bathsheba there. He's not talking to Uriah there. He's talking to God there. He's saying to God, I have sinned against you. You see, he had sinned against and with Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. But he understood that his sin was not primarily horizontal. It was vertical. His sin was against God. It was an affront to his holiness. It was the breaking of God's law. And he owns up to it. And he says to God, I have sinned against you. In fact, he says, it is against you and you only that I have sinned. David knew that his sin really was against the holiness of God. He had broken God's law. He says, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But also David acknowledged that he deserved the judgment of God. In verse 4 he says this. He says, you are justified when you speak and you're blameless when you judge. David, David knew he had no defense. You know, that, that, that's true confession. Confession is saying, look, I don't, have any, I don't have any excuse. I don't have any defense. And you are completely justified in whatever you do to me. You are completely just. In verse 5, he goes on to say he understood that his sin was a deeper problem than just those two sins I've mentioned. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Goes back to what we know theologically as original sin. The sin of Adam and Eve has been passed down to their ancestors. I said that wrong, didn't I? Didn't I? It's not their ancestors, it's their progeny. The sin of Adam and Eve has been sent down generation after generation. That's why Paul says all have sinned. We're born sinners in need of salvation and forgiveness. Well, second, as you deal with your sin, first was must be with conviction and confession. Second, as you deal with your sin, you must make a plea for mercy. We back up now to verses 1 and 2, where David says, Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to your, the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. David is pleading for grace. Be gracious to me. Give me grace. 
You know, one of the things that troubles me about our world today is people throw around the word justice without having any idea of what justice means. We want justice. No, you don't. Let me assure you, you don't want justice. You don't want justice from God. You want grace. You want mercy. That's what David's praying for here. Be gracious to me, O God. And notice that plea for mercy and grace was not based on anything about himself. He doesn't say, be gracious to me, O God, because I've been such a good guy. I've done so much for you. I'm the king. He says, according to your loving kindness, be gracious to me. You see, David knew that about God. When God revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself just that way. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And David claims that by faith and says, Oh God, based on who you are, you be gracious. Please be gracious to me. He knew that God was full of loving kindness and compassion. But notice what David asked for in this plea for mercy. He says, verse 1, According to the greatness of your compassions, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. David knew he was filthy. He knew he was dirty. He knew he was stained by his sin. He was pleading for God to cleanse him and to blot out his sins. If you look around on the floor, you'll see a number of stains on the carpet. It's one of the hazards of doing everything in the same building. The carpet takes a beating. And periodically we have to call the carpet cleaners. And they bring their machines in here and they clean the stains. They blot them out. And when they're done, guess what? You can't see those stains any longer. They're gone. And that's the way it is, you see. When God blots out our transgressions, He removes them so that He can't see them any longer. They're no longer held against us. The Bible says God separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. I'm not sure how far that is. That's a long way. He hurls our sins into the deepest part of the sea. And I'm not sure how deep that is, but it's very, very deep. And it's dark down there and you can't see. And when God blots your sin away, it is gone. But you know, after the carpet cleaners have come, and we have a few more meals in here, Guess what? There are a few more stains on the carpet. And after a while, we've got to call the carpet cleaners back. Have these carpets cleaned again. That's the same way it is in your spiritual life. We continually have to confess our sin to God and appropriate His grace of forgiveness. John says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to 
cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That again is what David prays for in verse 3. He says, wash me from my iniquity. That Hebrew word is really used to wash a garment. And David knew he's like a filthy garment that needed to be washed and cleansed from his sin. You know what Isaiah said, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And David sensed the importance of that so much, he asked for it twice. He said, wash me and cleanse me, blot out my transgressions. He goes on, in fact, in verse 7, it says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9, he says, Hide your face from my iniquities. Blot out all my transgressions. David wanted no remembrance of those sins to be left any longer. Oh God, hide your face from them. Don't look at them any longer. Blot them out so you don't see them and hold them against me anymore. And then third, as you confess your sin, you need to ask God for some specific things. That's what David does here. Really a number of things that David prays for and asks God for. One is he asks for a clean heart. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David knew but his heart was the problem. Folks, the heart is the heart of the problem. The Bible says that the heart of man is wicked. That's why we need a changed heart. We need a new heart. The Bible says a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's why David says, look, God, Create me a clean heart because I know if my heart's not clean, my life's not going to be clean. If my heart's not pure, my life's not going to be pure. And, and so David doesn't ask just for superficial washing here. He says, oh God, get to the core of the problem. Change my heart. And if you're really struggling with sin, if, it really, if you really have a struggle, if you can't find any sense of victory, that may be the core problem. It may be your heart. Let me back that up. It is your heart. There may be some here this morning whose heart has never really been changed. Someone here today who whose heart is still, even though you're kind of involved peripherally, superficially in the things of the church, the work of the Lord, that you don't really... You don't really understand it. Haven't experienced it. Your desire for sin is greater than your desire for obedience. Oh, you try for a while, but you're back to the same old, same old. That's true. Pray this prayer. Oh God, create in me a clean heart. Change my heart. Give me a new heart. That I might have a new life. Another thing David prays for is for a continued sense of God's presence. You know, sin breaks our fellowship with God. Again, that's what David experienced back in Psalm 32. He, he felt estranged from God, cut off from God, and the reality of it was because that's because of his sin. It's just like 
if I've done something to you or offended you or hurt you, that affects our relationship, doesn't it? We're kind of estranged, kind of, it's kind of tense between us until one or both of us says, look, let's get this settled. Let's put this behind us. David prays a, a kind of peculiar prayer in verse 10. Excuse me, verse 11. It says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. As we've seen in our study on Wednesday nights, I believe personally that's an Old Testament request. When David lived, the Holy Spirit would come upon people at particular times and do particular things. Holy Spirit would come, the Holy Spirit would go. It would leave people. But after Pentecost, Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church. And it's here our constant companion. Jesus said, I'll ask the Father, and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. He went on to say, He abides with you. He will be in you. Now, that doesn't mean that an Old Testament believer could lose their salvation. But it does mean, I think it's clear, as I said on Wednesday night, it's clear, I think, in the, in the Bible that the Holy Spirit functioned differently pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost. But the point of the psalm is sin removes our sense of the presence of God in our lives. That's what David's praying for here. Oh, God, don't remove your sense of presence with me. Don't break fellowship with me. You need to pray for that and to be restored as you confess your sin. And then another thing he prays for is for the joy of the Lord to be restored to him. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Go back up to verse 8. Make me hear the joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken rejoice. Look, there is real joy that comes from knowing you're forgiven. In fact, I don't know of any greater source of joy than knowing that God has blotted out your sin and He doesn't hold it against you any longer. Folks, that is a source of real joy. And if you haven't experienced that, you probably haven't experienced the fullness of what it means to be forgiven. David says, look, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He'd had it before. He wants it again. His bones, figuratively speaking, have been broken by his guilt. He says, now make me hear joy and gladness. So we need to pray for specific things from God. Clean heart, sense of God's presence, return of joy. And fourth and finally, and I'm going to be quick. We need to make a promise or two to God. Confession of sin is not just a one-way street. We just don't take forgiveness from God without promising something back to Him in return. Notice what David says. One thing he promises, he'd be a witness to others about what God had done for him. Verse 13. He says, after I'm forgiven, if after you've restored me to the joy of my salvation, then, he says, 
I will teach transgressing your ways and sinners will be converted to you. One of the most powerful testimonies of the gospel is the difference it makes in your life. That's why Jesus said, don't hold your light under a bushel. Let it shine. Don't, don't keep this forgiveness that, that you receive from God to yourself. You tell someone else. We get so excited about so many things, don't we? We look at our phones, don't we? Trying to find information. Boy, we want scores. And boy, when we see our team won. Man, we want to tell somebody. The Bulldogs won. The Rebels won. How about telling somebody the joy of forgiveness? God forgave me. I came into this great sin. God forgave me. He washed me as white as snow. That's our shame. Paul says, or David says, look, if you forgive, when you forgive me, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell somebody else. And they'll be converted to you. A changed life is a powerful witness to the power of the gospel. Light ignites light. Matches ignite matches. And the difference the gospel has made in your life can arouse an interest in the life of someone else to experience the same. Another thing David promised was true worship. What does he say in verse 14? Deliver me from the guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Look, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Worship is all about a response to who God is, what God has done. We're not here just to ask things from God. We're here to praise God, aren't we? That's why we're here. Look, why does a church full of people come out on a cloudy, dreary, rainy day? It's because you understand something of the joy of forgiveness. You want to express that to God. You want to give Him praise for who He is and what He's done. Folks, that's what worship is. Don't ever forget it. That's what worship is. Worship is not about us. Worship is all about Him and saying to Him, Oh God, You are great. You are merciful. You are compassionate. You are forgiven. You have forgiven me. And I worship You. I joyfully praise You because of what You've done for me. And then finally, David promised to have the right attitude. And the right attitude was a a sense of brokenness before the Lord. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David knew that the best he could give to God was just a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, you won't despise. He goes on to say in the verse before that, You don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. 
you're not pleased with burnt offering. Now, God required burnt offerings, but you know what Jesus told the, the Pharisees? Like, he, didn't, he didn't like your sacrifices because they're not done with the heart. A sacrifice, a church attendance, teaching a Bible study, teaching a Sunday school class, preaching a sermon doesn't mean anything without a broken and contrite heart, a right relationship with the Lord. And so David says, that's what I'll bring. Folks, as long as you have breath, you'll continue to sin. And so as long as you live, you'll need to deal with the reality of your sin. Pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you of it. Bring you to the point of confession. Pray that He will cleanse you. Blot it all out. Make you white as snow. Forgive everyone. Remember them no more. Not remove His presence from you. And give Him yourself, your heart, and your worship, and your witness. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. What an honest song. And I pray we'd all be able to pray it. That we'd all be broken by our sin, that we would confess it, receive forgiveness of it, and give you praise for it. We exalt you today, O gracious God. In Jesus' name, amen.